0: it is we started early Eric we call him Fidel now okay I do Eric is pushing the band a little bit so trying to start on time and end on time what a concept are we ready to rec- ready to record okay fire off here we go April 18 2010 lecture discussion number 20. On Zechariah 11, John 12, John 13, Proverbs 6, Matthew 12, Revelation 17, and Revelation 6. So that's where we are today, and it's been a couple of weeks since we were last here at Zechariah 11. All of that I gave you is in a Zechariah 11 context, which is the eighth mystery. That is where the idle shepherd is, the foolish shepherd, the worthless shepherd, actually the perverse Shepherd is there, and that, of course, as you know, is the mystery of the man of sin, the eighth mystery of the eleven mysteries, or the mystery of the antichrist. So that's where we are, and we had, of course, the necessary Passover unleavened bread, first fruits, special Sunday, and uh, and then last week's we had the law of uh, biogenesis, the inner life of a cell. It was movie night, so we haven't had any Zechariah eleven for a while. And I, by the way, I considered reshowing the inner life of the cell again, because um, it's just that important. Not, not the whole thing. I wouldn't uh, put the professor up there to explain it to you again. Just the computer animation, because it's so very important. I know that if you see it just a few more times, I, I know that. I have showed it. Uh, not that particular one, but I have done the, uh, I taught biology. Isn't that scary? Were you, were, were you in my biology class, Katrina? No. Was your sister? Did she flunk? Okay. I taught biology. I don't know how they figured an electrical physics person would do good at biology, but I had to teach the cell structure and everything, and I taught it the first time and gave the quiz because test was always on Friday. And uh, that will mean nothing to you, but it will to somebody. Test was always on Friday, and uh, they all flunked the test. And so I was left with trying to figure out why they couldn't understand the inner life of a cell and what was going on. And, of course, I explained it again, test on Friday, and they all flunked again. I suspected a conspiracy. But actually, no. No, they were just dumb. I mean, I'm I'm kidding about none of them are here. That's why I asked. I knew where I was headed. Uh, eventually, though, they did get it. And I learned that if you just this is something if you watch that film and that film's amazing, if you watch it just a couple of more times, it's going to be readily understandable. You'll be amazed at what you know, what you can say. And all of you are going to be able to explain every piece of that film to your friends. You will. Strangers on the bus. You'll start out talking to them about the inner life of ribosomes and how the protein motor protein goes up. All that stuff. And you'll stop in the grocery checkout line. You know, the 15 items or less. And, and that bugs me, by the way. Have you noticed that it's 15 items and less? What was it when, when I was a kid just, what, 10 years ago? When I was four fifteen. 15. Have you noticed that we have an inflationary spiral on the quick checkout cashier? Used to be what? No. Used to be three. Three items or less. Then it went to five. Then it went to seven. You're exposing. Then nine. Then ten. Now what is it? Fifteen items or less. And that, that of course, you know, and people cheat, don't they? How many items they got? They got 17, 18 items. And so I just wanted to make a sign someday. It's something that I wanted to do. I've always thought this way, as you know, because I am what? Yes, eccentric and weird. But I always wanted to sign and I wanted to carry it around and then I wanted to hang it up and I wanted to put it on just a regular checkout line. And I wanted to say express checkout lane, 208 items or less. But that would be cool because then I'd stand behind people with full baskets. Right. And what would I do? I would complain about them. That lady, that lady's got 215 items. Can you believe it? I'd be screaming at her. I can't believe some people would come up to the 208 items or less line. And that's just What I would think would be fun. But let me tell you about grocery item or grocery lines. It is a wonderful place to talk to people. It's amazing. I do it all the time and you know I do it. But I really want the assigning value job, don't I? I don't want the checkout line. I want the assigning value. There's somebody that assigns value and I want that job because that would be a blast. Sham wows are what? What's the value of a sham wow? What is it? What do they say? It's thirty-eight dollars, thirty-eight dollars, and so you get it for nineteen ninety-five. And so, what did you do? You saved. Oh my goodness! So I want that job. I want a signed value. I'd like to say ShamWow is what fifteen hundred dollar value. You get it for fifty bucks. You saved fourteen hundred fifty dollars. Now push the envelopes. Jupiter Jacks, a billion dollar value. You can have it for two bucks. And what are you now? You saved a billion dollars, you're a billionaire. It, 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 it drives me insane. It does. Why do people fall for such obvious tricks? Why do we tolerate such insults to our intelligence? Uh, why does this work? Why is it that you assume that that is the value? How much is a Sam Wall? A oh, sham wall. Oh, I can't say it. I used to sell Wendy's Frosties. I wanted a Wendy's Frosty machine when I found out how it worked. Do you know how much a Wendy's Frosty costs at Wendy's? Fifteen cents. What do they sell it to you for? Two bucks. How much does a cup cost? Twenty cents. Now, I'm dating myself. It's probably a little more than that now. But the product is really, really cheap. And so I wanted a Wendy's. I could sell them at basketball games. I could retire. I was the athletic director at a local high school here. And I saw it as a means to making the athletic department this, this monster thing. I could never get permission to buy my Wendy's Frosty machine. But what makes you think that that is the value? Shamwell costs what to make? Come on. Think about it. Probably 10 cents. And you bought it, why? For 20 bucks. Because you'd be out of your mind not to have one of these, You've got to be kidding. It's in the sales. No one ever went broke underestimating the American consumer. If you doubt me, look at bottled water. Pet rocks. My favorite, what, the electric shock, shock abdominal thingy. Put it on your waist, right? That's a, that's a $500 value. We'll let you have it for 10 bucks. You saved how much? Jenna is gone, but her grandfather used to say, "Listen, if you spent fifteen hundred dollars, how much did you save? You didn't save anything? You spent? Fi- you see? Oh, never mind. Okay, I just uh, I got off on that, didn't I? Uh, uh, the inner life of a cell." It's something that all of you can quickly become expert at explaining. Essentially, it is the law of biogenesis, which says what? Life only comes from pre-existing life. And now I want you to look at what Christ says. The law of biogenesis, life only comes from pre-existing life. I hope you see Matthew 4 in here, where one of the things that Satan asked Christ to do is make life from something that is not Existing life. Would God do that? See, That's what's going on in Matthew four, among other things. But Christ calls himself. He's God in the flesh. And he says, I am the first light. Of all the light, I am the primable, the first light. He also says, I am the primable life. What's he mean by primable life? He is the first life. What does that mean? All life comes from pre-existing life. There is no life unless life has existence. And he is that first life, that pre-existent, infinite life, just as he is that pre-existent, infinite light. Those are two incredible statements that he makes. So if you have biogenesis and you understand it, it is a weapon for you to carry with you as you travel through your world confronting um, grocery lines and the like, because you will find evolutionary atheistic monism everywhere you turn. It is the, almost the uh, omnipresent, uh, it's, it's just hard, if not impossible to get away. I got a call today, I'm writing the rest of my lecture, the conclusion today. I got a call from somebody in Fairbanks that wanted me to talk to his girlfriend about the law of biogenesis. Life only comes from pre-existing life. So if you have the law of biogenesis combined with an understanding of the reproductive machinery of a cell or the inner life of a cell, you have two very big guns. You're not carrying a little penknife anymore. You've got an Uzi. You've got a 50 caliber sniper rifle. And that's what I want you to have. And you can do it. It won't take very long. I just keep showing it and I'll keep explaining it and you'll have it. Pretty soon you'll watch the film and you'll go, oh, look, that's a white blood cell. Look what it's doing. This is what it's doing. You'll be able to explain it to yourself and then to others. And that woman, she has a wonderful statement at some place in one of her lectures where she says, Do you think it's possible to convince me that life did not come from pre-existing life? Do you think it's possible to convince that woman that there is no God? Her faith is unshakable. She has those two weapons. She has the law of biogenesis combined with the inner life reproductive machinery of the cell. And then if you understand why God calls himself a spirit, because that's make no image, Exodus 24, right? God describes himself. That's the second commandment. God describes himself as a supernatural spirit. Why? When you understand that you have three pieces and those three pieces prove that each of us, you, they will prove it to your neighbors. They will prove it to your kids. You have those three pieces. You will have proof that each of us has a non-material, a non-physical soul spirit that is immortal. And your mind, your consciousness, your being, your essence will continue. It will survive the death of your physical body. You can't prove it. Just those three pieces. There are lots of other pieces, as you know. But if you have those three, you're going to run around proving that. That's astonishing. I will tell you that I doubt in this city that there is more than a 100 people that can prove the existence of their soul. I hope to raise up 50 of you right here and stick you loose in the grocery stores. By the way, who's going to call you when you can prove that your soul survives the death of your physical body? Who's going to to call you? Dying people are going to call you. So go to funerals, right? Anyway. That's my goal for you, and I understand how important it is to, to, to get that inner life of a cell so that you know that the complexity that is down at a single cell and that only a single cell can, rep- can provide life to another cell, only, only living material can reproduce. And as I said, there's other pieces that are equally valuable. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, Second law of thermodynamics, entropy, quantum physics, the created order, space, matter, time, and energy, understanding nefesh kaya, understanding what living soul means. You know Genesis 15, Matthew 26, and of course Matthew 4. But if you get those three, those are the ones you pass on to your children and your friends. And I made this comment to uh, to Dave earlier. This is what we do when we're in the band and we're supposed to be paying attention. We're not. We talk about things like, oh, actually, it's Louie and Dave both, placebo effect. So I threw it in. The the placebo effect, if you read Dr. Edgar Andrews, and as an athlete, as somebody that's that's played almost every sport, um, I understand the placebo effect very well. Dr. Andrews calls it the final coffin nail into evolutionary atheistic monism. In other words, if you understand just the placebo effect, you have enough to defeat every evolutionist that is there. What is the placebo? By the way, churches understand the placebo effect really, really well, and that 's why i 've said it before many times that it 's a critical piece of information. As an athlete, I know that I'm competing. This is what's wrong with steroids. Is it obvious that Barry Bonds is on steroids? Yes, it's obvious that he was. Nobody his age could keep doing what he was doing and recover that fast. He was better at 42 than he was at 22. It's impossible. Your body breaks down and you can't keep reproducing that kind of athletic level game after game after game like he did. But what really helps him, and I listened to Mark McGuire, another big-time baseball player, say that he didn't think steroids affected him that much. Well, he disregarded the placebo effect. Because if I go to if I go in and I I play softball still not very well, every now and then I I do something remarkable. I tell people I'm one of the I'm one of the best uh, 80 year old softball players in the state. And you'd be surprised how many kids at 20, 15, 18, 22 that I play against are convinced that I am 80. Which gives me an advantage. Not much of one. But if uh, when these new bats came out... It used to be you had to reproduce a perfect skill. You had to drive that front leg and you had to come through. Everything had to work. If not, the ball didn't go very well. Then they made really cool bats, just like they make really cool golf clubs. And the bats will actually bend. And you can make that bat bend with some wrist action. And it's astonishing what you can do. But I would go up to the plate and I've got a $350 bat. How am I feeling? I'm feeling really good. Because I got a bat. Mark McGuire goes up to, to the plate and he's on steroids and he knows he has an advantage. Barry Bonds is on steroids. He knows he has an advantage. And that changes his re- emotional relationship between him and the pitcher. He goes to the plate convinced, you're not going to get me out. I, I just took equine or bovine steroids just two minutes ago. I am unbelievable. That's how he goes to the plate. That mindset, that immaterial, his brain is the physical, but his consciousness, his mind is telling his body how to perform. And he's got tremendous confidence. That's the placebo effect. They have given people things and they have told them that it is steroids and it isn't steroids it's sugar how do they perform they've actually had one group that they gave steroids to and they told them that it was sugar the other group they gave sugar to and they told them it was steroids so they had these people on steroids these people on sugar who won the sugar people they were convinced they had an advantage they slaughtered the steroid people that's been going on athletics as long as I can remember. And so you have what's called. I got to spell it right. Did I spell it right? Some nurse. Didn't I? I mean, look, is it I before E? Yes, it is. Oh, there's a couple of eyes in there. Opioid. They can reproduce what your brain does. Uh, From an analgesic standpoint, they can take dope and they can light your brain up just like a placebo will. But the placebo lights your brain up more. And they have understood the difference between the placebo and the opioid. The placebo wins. So in other words, when you've heard them say mind over matter, they're absolutely the case. How does that explain that you have an immortal soul? Have you made the connection while I've rambled on about it, threw it in just for fun? I have an evolutionary man come to me, or woman or kid or whatever, and I had one today. They were very upset. The girl was very upset that God had allowed so much evil. She didn't want to worship an evil God. And so that's really easy for me to get rid of because evil doesn't come from God. It comes from her. I told her, do you want God to kill all the evil? Yes. Okay, see you later. Because he'll, he'll get you because you're evil. The real question is, is, why does he allow you to be evil? Why does he allow you to choose to reject him? Why do you have free will? Why does free will result in rejecting God? Why did he let that happen? But then most of the time, evolutionary people, the athe- atheistic monists, I can always just say placebo effect, because they know that the mind can change the brain without Opioid. They know it. They know that an athlete can convince himself that he has steroids and that he is a superman and perform like one. They know it, even though he has a sugar pill. And a pizza hut, right? Pizza hut's my favorite. It's, uh, Edgar Andrews writes about this. He calls it, uh, if you pay more, you enjoy more. But the Pizza Hut commercial where the people are being given what? They're in some fancy restaurant and they're giving them lasagna or something, right? And they're just thinking, ooh, this is really expensive. This is a $150 lasagna. What is it? $2 $2 lasagna. But their brain, if you take, put them under a MRI or a PET scan or whatever you put them under, their brain is lighting up like it's $200 lasagna. Same thing's true with wine. They do it all the time. They give people test, taste, taste tests and they say, here's a $100 bottle of wine. What do you think? Whoa, this is a great wine. Here's a 5 And, of course, it's the opposite. They give them ripple. Whoa. Because your mind can control your brain. And we know that. In churches, we know it all the time. Who really knows it? These, wo- these city-to-city, arena-to-arena, tent-to-tent charlatans, right? They're going to get people to jump out of wheelchairs and run around the room. For how long? Till the crowd gives the money. And then here comes the crash. I can convince you... And your brain can change your physical condition. And they know it. That's my great. The greatest line I ever heard was the uh, hypnotist in Vegas who was so upset that the church had stole all his stuff. He was using it on Sunday. So expectations, the placebo performance, encouragement, um, It's really, really an amazing thing. This is, again, I'll steal this from Edgar Andrews as well. He has what he calls the horse shadow versus the horse rider. Okay? And what does he mean by that? The monist believes... The evolutionist, the atheist, believes that the horse, the shadow that's from the horse, is made by the physical horse. And when the physical horse dies, the shadow dies. The dualist, what the Bible teaches, is no, the physical body, the horse, has a rider that controls it. See, this one, the the shadow or the consciousness or the brain or the essence of the being or your person, they, the monist, will say that's like a shadow. And when the horse dies, the shadow is gone. No, the Bible says that it's like a horse and a rider. And when the horse dies, what does the rider do? Goes on. But the horse is being controlled by the rider. Your physical brain, your body, is being controlled by your mind, your consciousness, your soul, your spirit that exists long after is immortal. After the death of the body, the rider continues. This this is nonsense and is disproven by the placebo effect. Because I just said to you, and you know it's true... I when, look at me. I'm raising goosebumps in my arms. I was going to try to do it on command, but I got started a little early. Can anybody see that? I have been taught how to raise goosebumps, how to get myself, how to make my mind physically change my body to get me fired up so that I can explode. Especially for wrestlers, because that's what I did, or offensive linemen or defensive linemen. I loved linebacker. The most fun I ever had was linebacker. Chasing after the quarterback. Catch this little tiny kid by the foot. Show his girlfriend, look what I've got here. (coughs) I loved linebacker. Anyway, you had to fire across the line. Is that the phone? Is it for me? It's under a hat. Wow, that is one loud phone. Anyway, the point of it is, is that I know that my mind can change my body. And that's what the placebo effect teaches you. Your mind can change your body. If you can take stress off of yourself, you'd be surprised how much physical uh, ailment you can deal with. Um, You put the body back into its natural um, state. And so uh, a great deal is accomplished by that. But understand that. The mind controls the machine. And we'd expect that because God says He's a spirit. In other words, God says, I exist without any material substrate. I exist as a spirit. I am a supernatural being. Now, that supernatural being put on humanity and came Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, right? But He existed and still exists without any material substrate. Logically then, we are in His image. We also exist without that body. Our soul spirit is the rider that controls the horse, if you will. That's the definition of nephesh kaya, or living soul. So, to conclude this little thing, if the non-physical mind can affect the physical brain, then the mind cannot be the product of the brain. The rider is not the product of the horse. The mind impacts the brain it must be the controlling force and that alone defeats evolutionary atheism that says that there is no mind or there is no consciousness there is no soul okay Zechariah 11 or where we last were before the Passover break and that by the way is for the internet iTunes and Podbean people who may have been confused that there wasn't an April 11 posted lecture There wasn't an April 11 posted lecture because we watched a movie and you were all here and we had popcorn and we had Jujubes and a great time was had by all. If you weren't here, sorry, not really fake sorry. How are your children? Good. Good to see you again. And to see you again. You didn't have twins, did you? Because boy, twins would be really horrible, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. Sorta. Of. You you have to tell them how good it will be to have twins, because we call that the what? The placebo effect. That's right. We want to change their mind about what's going to happen to them physically really soon. I'm kidding. No, I'm not. We watched a movie last week, so there wasn't any April 11 uh, posted lecture. So where exactly were we on March 28th? Well, the best way I can do it is to kind of make a list really fast to sum it all up where we left off, because I know none of you remember anything, and I understand that completely. We had the horses of the Antichrist. See how we have kind of a horse theme today? We had the horses, the four horses of the Antichrist, right? And you remember all the colors, don't you? And how what they all stand for, I hope you do. But uh, we have white, uh, black, red, and pale, not necessarily in that order. But they, those four horses represent four stages of the Antichrist's destruction or his ministry, if you will, those are um, to be understood. And, And so you can see things that happened under what would be called the auspices or the category of the white horse. So the horses of the Antichrist, and that's Revelation 6. For those of you who want to check that out again. And then we have the Judas-Satan kiss, which is a very important thing. that Whoops, ha- I put kiss instead of Satan. We have a Judas-Satan kiss. See, and what I mean by that is Satan is inside of Judas. So I have Judas and Satan kissing Christ in Gethsemane. And it, when they are the most powerful created being that has ever existed. Notice how I said that. Christ, God, is not created, but they are the most powerful created being ever, and they are kissing Christ and, and what that means. And that, of course, has a relationship with Christ giving Judas the first piece of bread out of the Passover, the first piece being the, the uh uh, bread of honor and love. OK, so they stand in contrast, by the way, the kiss and the piece of bread. But they have a relationship. Here is where Satan and Judas, when they do this, what Satan does is reveal part of his plan, what he's trying to accomplish. He is trying. He is attacking the love and the mercy aspect of the triune Godhead. There are three, if you will, aspects To the triune Godhead. And this is displayed in the dramatic theodicy of Gethsemane. That won't mean anything to you. But see me later. Gethsemane, Christ, God, the son says, your will be done, not mine. He was speaking as the love mercy part of the triune Godhead. And that means the uh, father's part would be the solution between the conflict between infinite, omnipotent love and mercy and infinite, omnipotent Just judgment. And that, of course, is what's happening in Genesis 15. Well, they are attacking the love mercy part of God. That's the one that they're going after. And they they demonstrate that with the kiss. Okay. the other thing that was on our list is Christ crucified. What is the symbol, by the way, for Christ crucified? That's right. It's circumcision. Thank you for all yelling that out. Whenever you see circumcision in the Bible, you know that that is a symbol for Christ crucified. That's what's going on with Moses and Zipporah. That is why God has to stop Moses and get his sons uh, circumcised, because the symbol of circumcision uh, is, or I'm sorry, circumcision is a symbol for the crucifixion of Christ, so we had two unsaved kids. Anyway, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. That was on our list of a couple of weeks ago. And, of course, it is foolishness. Foolishness to the Gentiles. It's still the same. Christ crucified, God's mercy, God putting on humanity and sacrificing himself as a substitute for us. That's foolishness to the evolutionary monastic atheist. They think that's totally crazy. It's exactly the same as it was then. And it is a stumbling block to the Jews because they cannot understand why God would do that. So, key questions is, why is it foolishness? Why is it a stumbling block? I'm going to have to get rid of biogenesis here, aren't I? Don't worry. You're going to run around telling people about the law of biogenesis and reproductive cell. Okay, I'm on D. Judas is called a thief and a guide. And what else does he do from a couple weeks ago? He buys some property. So I like to call him a real estate agent. No offense to any real estate agents here. I'm very sorry. I had one guy ask me one time, no offense to any lawyers here, I'm really sorry. He asked me, he said, is it possible to be a Christian and a lawyer? That was true, he actually asked me that. So anyway, he's a real estate investor, Judas is. He invests in real estate, what did he buy? And by the way, when he buys it, who's inside of him? Satan's inside of him. How smart, how powerful is he? What's he know? He decides that he wants to buy some real estate. He's in a hurry to buy it. A bunch of questions happen there. That, by the way, is from John 12, 6 and Acts 1, 16 through 18. And then we had, if you remember, and I know that you don't, it's okay. We have the strong man of uh, Proverbs 6 and we have the armed destroyer. I'm sorry, the strong man of Matthew 12:29. And then I have the armed man. And notice I'm making them the same. The armed man of Proverbs 6, 11. I'm going to tell you that that's a, the reference is the same. And then uh, the last thing that we had down here that we brought up was the floating axe head. And what the floating axe head represents in Second Kings uh, 6. Okay, that's where Elisha raises up the floating axe head. What does the floating axe head represent in that story where the very valuable axe head is lost into the river of Jordan? The Jordan River descends from the city of Adam. Oh, that makes sense. And it goes down into death and destruction. And so it's the descender into death and destruction. So in the middle of uh, the Jordan River, someone loses this very valuable axe head and it sinks to the bottom. And Elisha, a type of Christ, throws in a branch and raises it back up and tells him to pick it up. So what does the floating axe head represent? Yes, that's right. The immaterial portion of you, the supernatural component, your soul In your spirit, that which makes you a living soul. So. The obvious question with all of those, how does the horses, the four horses, Revelation 6, the kiss of Judas and Satan, the first piece of bread, Christ crucified as a stumbling block in foolishness, Judas being called a thief, a guide, and a real estate investor, the strong man of Matthew twelve twenty nine that has something in his house that Christ has to go and take from him, the armed man of Proverbs six eleven, the destroyer who is waiting to, to proun- pounce on the weak and the stupid, sorry, not really, sorry. I don't think anybody, listen, I don't think anybody here is stupid. But the Bible calls you stupid if you do something. So today is a classic stupid test. Anyway, and then the floating act said, how do all of those fit together? Well, first and, firstly, they describe the method of the Antichrist. how it is he's going to proceed. That's what this is. This is the order of how he will do things and what he will do as he's doing it. It's the order of his wickedness. So they, it describes that. But it also gives you the motive. I had a young lady a couple of weeks ago saying, why are they doing this? Well, this will tell you why they're doing it. So this is the why they do what they do. When I say they, I mean the Antichrist and Satan. So this also, these items describe the motive and not exclusively, there are many other passages, Revelation and Daniel and Joel and Zechariah, obviously. But these, these are ones that really set it out very quickly for you, much like the biogenesis, the inner workings of the cell, the placebo effect. If you have those and you have these side by side, I hope that you now have a huge club. What did Mark tell you today? That you've you got to be dangerous. I think that was absolutely profound. And that's my goal is to make you dangerous. I don't want you to be dispenseless and just cut to pieces. You know how difficult it is for me to have taught high school and and find those kids three, four, five years later and they are cut to pieces. They've been slaughtered out there like like little tiny, tiny things. Boneless chickens, I call them. All they're good for is to be eaten by a predator. They can't fly. They can't fight. They can't walk. Just flop on the ground. Proverbs 6 talks about boneless chickens. We're going to get to that in a second. So anyway, there's many more items in the Bible that describe uh, the Antichrist, the motives. And these are just the ones that I occupied with now. I think they're the ones that work the best. That's why I'm bringing them up to you. They talk about the how and the why or the method and the motive of Judas and Satan and the Antichrist or as the Antichrist. Now, for the sake of the visitor, do we have a visitor today? Let's pretend we do. And for the sake of the visitor. Hi, Karina, how are you doing? How's your arm? Wow, are you back to work? Good. Good, don't go back to work. Some of you know Bill and I and Lori and Jane. Is Jane back in the building yet? Oh, she's in the nursery. Jane and J- Lori and I and Bill, we're out framing an Eagle River. at our- That's pretty scary for me to be framing. But we thought it was something that we needed to do, and so we're doing it. And the people we're working for watched Lori pick up a 20 pound sledge and beat on concrete with it. That, that blew his mind, let me tell you. But we're, uh, we're finding out just how hard it is to go back to work physically. So, if our arena, trust me, don't do it. Be the person that assigns value. That's a good job. OK, here we go. Matthew twelve twenty nine. How can one enter a strong man's house? This is Jesus Christ. This is God in the flesh. This is creator God. Nothing is made be- that Christ did not make. This is what he says. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds a strong man? And then he will plunder his house. That's what Christ says. And that's mostly in your bulletin. So Christ is saying, listen, I'm going to go into the strong man's house. Who's the strong man? Satan is. I'm going to take his stuff. No problem. And there isn't a problem because who? Who's Satan? He's inside the created order. He's a created being. Who's going to take his stuff? God. It's not a fair fight. Okay? So, Christ tells you, I'm going, but there's a lot of questions now, huh? What's the first question? What's the obvious question? Christ is going to go into Satan's house. What's the obvious question? Where's Satan's house? What's the next obvious question? Christ's going to t- bind him. Is Christ going to bind him? Where in, where in the Bible does Christ bind Satan? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's in Revelation. So, he's going to bind him. And then, what's he going to do? He's going to plunder him. What's the obvious question? What's Satan got that Christ wants? Does Satan know that Christ wants it? Does Satan know that that Christ is coming to get it? Yes, he does. So why is this? What is he doing all this stuff for? Well, that's where we're headed. 6.11 through 19. We'll start at 11. Proverbs 6. So shall your poverty come upon you like a prowler and your need like an armed man? Okay, that's, a, by the way, that's the strong man reference, I believe. Christ makes this 1229 reference and its complement is in 611 Proverbs. So shall your poverty come upon you like a prowler and your need like an armed man? To help you with that, there is a armed man out there seeking to destroy you and he's waiting for you to be something. He's waiting for you to be stupid. So this is where your stupid test is. You ask yourself, how am I doing? Now, let's go on to 12. A worthless person, a wicked man. This, by the way, is the same as Zechariah's worthless shepherd or idle shepherd. It has a relationship there. Okay, a worthless person. Yours might say a naughty man. We covered that back in September when I did this back then. It means a person of nothing. Not means nothing. Not bad or naughty means a person of not a worthless person, a wicked man, a worthless shepherd, an idle shepherd. Uh, You see the Zechariah language there walks with a perverse mouth. Okay, what this is. Is and now I have the armed man, and now I have the worthless person. He winks with, and, and literally it means man of Belial. Let me put that up there B E L I A L. Man of Belial. So this is a man. And it's a man of Belial. What is Belial, the root word of? Beelzebub. And that, by the way, is the context of Matthew 12. That's how they fit together. Belial is the name of Satan. So I have a man of Satan. Who is it? It's an Antichrist reference. Walks with a perverse mouth. What does that mean? He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. This is a reference that says this person cannot and will not be saved. And that makes him an extraordinary person. What's the obvious question? How is it that he cannot and will not be saved? And then these things here. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brethren. That, by the way, is a a list of the sins of Satan. Now, hopefully you remember these from where we were last when we were here, excuse me, last, on or about September 20th, 2009. I actually looked it up. The man of Belial is a satanic reference. As I said, the man of nothing is the man of Satan, and he is the worthless leader, reference Zechariah 11, the worthless shepherd, the worthless shepherd leader. Okay, so the man of Belial, again, is a reference to a man of Satan, of Satan, begatted by Satan. So this is the seed of Satan, Genesis 3.15. And so this is the Antichrist, I believe, and the Antichrist is thus revealed here in Proverbs 6. So now we're going to get characteristics of the Antichrist. And what do I want you to do now? Because we've been doing this for a while, what do I want you to immediately do? I want you to apply these characteristics to who? Judas, it's what I want you to do. Apply them to Judas. So Judas is a has a perverse mouth. Judas winks with his eyes. Judas shuffles his feet, points with his fingers, shuffles his feet. Winks his eyes. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. And suddenly his calamity will come on him. Okay, so the question becomes, where did Judas do all of those? It literally means, by the way, this, the Antichrist. He is one who orchestrates evil. He's cunning. He's always ordering others to attack. He's got little hand signals, little weeks, little secret signals that only the people that he's getting to attack. He has a relationship with attackers. But no one really notices him. He has what's called a froward mouth, which is a perverse, contrary, irrational nature. He cannot be reasoned with. I don't know if you know this, but there was recently a Batman movie. I know I don't care if you saw it or not, but it was the most recent one where the Joker is portrayed as someone that is is irrational. And what he represented, by the way, in that movie was the... Um, the terrorist groups that are attacking, you cannot reason with them. By the way, Israel knows that. Israel knows it's impossible to reason with the people that seek their destruction. There's a cartoon where there's one Jew left and one Arab left, one terrorist left. And they're looking at each other. And the terrorist blows himself up to kill the Jew. You cannot reason with some people. That's what that Batman movie did. It showed a person so evil, he didn't care about money, he burned it. That has a biblical context. I hope you understand that. I bring it up a lot because I know it's popular culture and people see it, it gives you an idea. But we have someone who orchestrates and he does all of this, but he remains hidden. No one really knows that he's the one orchestrating it. But that's what uh, Proverbs 6 says. He has a perverse, irrational nature. He does not seek to enrich or advance himself, but instead desires the destruction of all around him. Matthew Henry gave that commentary on Proverbs 6 in 1704. Those of you who are interested in how it comes out. In other words, the Antichrist cannot be assigned motives of riches or power. Cannot be. Not interested in it. He cannot be reasoned with. All he wants is what? Death. Not only for the persons he's attacking, but for who else? The attackers. He just wants death. If you came to him and said, I'll make you powerful, he says what? I'm already powerful, baby. I'll give you money. I don't want money. He wants death. Even his own death. Does that make sense? Why would Judas, Antichrist, want their own death? Same person, by the way, but we have a visitor. He's attacking the love of God. See, that's what the kiss does. Anyway, I want you to apply this to Judas. Consider then the 30 pieces of silver. Does Judas need the money? He has a perverse nature. He can't be reasoned with. He has a money box. Is he buying stuff with it? Does he want a new stereo? Is that your view? It doesn't fit with Proverbs 6. Okay? Judas would want those things. He would want the 30 pieces of silver. He would want what's in the money box because of how he can use it to contribute to the death of others. But he doesn't steal money because he wants money. He doesn't want to enrich himself. He's a different kind of thief. He has a perverse nature, an irrational, an unnatural. He doesn't think like anyone else thinks. Why not? He has Satan inside of him. And he wants Satan inside of him. They know each other. He is, as you've heard me say, he is, in fact, the seed. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. Now, add the armed man reference of Proverbs 6.11. The reference is one who is prepared to destroy. Your poverty will come upon you like a prowler and your need like one Like like an armed man. There's an armed man who is prepared to destroy you. And in context, it is the folly of the lazy. And what that means is the folly of those who are in spiritual poverty, or what we like to call here the stupid. They're stupid for a lot of reasons. They like being stupid, they want to be stupid. They think it's a good thing to be stupid. All the time you hear people say, uh, uh, I can't, I just lost it there. Oh, ignorance is bliss. No, ignorance is ignorance. It's like less is more. No, more is more. That makes sense to me at least. There was a, a man who was trying to rebuild um, a general, on, on rare or Onra, I can't remember his name exactly, but he was a general, who was trying to save the people of New Orleans, and he said, They're stuck on stupid. And that is absolutely the case for humanity today. It's stuck on stupid. And Proverbs 6 is talking about that. Lazy people. They are lazy with respect to learning the wisdom of God. They do not gather manna. They don't care to be wise. They are sleeping fools. And they are glad to be sleeping fools. And they are slaughtered. And so don't be bragging about how unknowledgeable you are, how lazy you are, how disinterested you are. You merely identify yourself as a weakling. You're a boneless chicken, and you're easily murdered, and your life is wasted. It is burned up. Not a good thing. I'm stunned by the amount of Christians who are proud of being ignorant of their Bible. Okay, now I want you to notice something back in Proverbs 6. Look at the the things of Satan and the things of the man of Satan. Notice that both of them have a mouth, okay? a lying tongue, a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes, um, a proud look. He shuffles his feet, feet that are swift to running to evil. Uh, he points with his fingers, okay? hands that shed innocent blood. Okay? He devises e- or perversity in his heart, uh, a heart that devises wicked plans. Devises, devises. Lies, false witness, sows discord, sows is, so is discord. They're identical. The man of Satan and Satan end up being the same. I would expect that, right? Okay. <clears throat> now, in Matthew twelve twenty nine, Jesus Christ comes into Belial's house. He comes into the armed man's house who has slaughtered the stupid, and he has, and he comes into it and he plunders it. So, what is what did I just prove to you? God loves stupid people. The evidence is obvious because he made so many of us. He must like it. Jesus Christ, God, comes into the armed man's house, comes into Belial's house, comes into the destroyer's house, comes into the strong man's house, Satan's house, and plunders it. And Christ takes from the armed man, takes from the destroyer, takes from Belial, takes from Beelzebub, takes from Satan. So what's the obvious question? What's he take? Where's the answer? Yeah, floating accident. Well done, first row. That's why they sit in the front row and they get the nice chairs. It's easier to sleep in the front row. It's easier to hit you with an eraser in the front row, too. Don't let that worry you. What does Christ take is the question. Does he take money? Does Satan steal money? Satan doesn't care about money. Does Judas steal money? Does Judas care about money? They don't care about money. Don't have this ridiculous Hollywood position that Judas is wanting money. It's crazy. It's indefensible. What then is the motive? What then is the plunder? Floating axe head, right? Got that? Well, that's, the, that's the plunder. I said back in March, lecture number 19, that Satan and Judas were attacking the love mercy of God. They see God's love as weakness. This kiss is derisive. It is hateful. It stands in contract, contrast to the true love, if you will. God is love. By the way, God is love. Love never fails. What never fails? Transitive property. God never fails. It's simple mathematics. Judas and Satan are mocking God and hating him with that kiss, and they know it, and God knows it. It is against the truth that is the first piece of honor and bread. God really does love Judas. He really does love Satan. He really does. That's extraordinary. But that's God. Okay. So, why did Judas buy the land over which he hung himself? It's obvious now, isn't it? It's, what's that? Is he, in, is he really investing in real estate? No, we can get rid right of that. Okay. Whoops. Oh! Uh. Is he planned to maybe mow it, put on a couple of trees? At a house, cows, Farmville. See, he really done what he's going to do? Somebody laughed. Now I know. I know. I know who you are now. You laugh at Farmville. <laughs> but does he plan to turn it, flip it, make a quick profit? Is that why he did it? Here is somebody who has Satan inside of him and he runs out and he buys a piece of property. Now, why is he doing that? That, by the way, is the Arthur Pink position, and I think that it's correct, and we'll get to that argument later. But let's ask some questions. He doesn't care about money. Money doesn't motivate him at all. He's irrational. He's perverse in the sense that he does not think the way we think. He has a deeper, more significant, more cunning, more evil reason. How much did he pay for the lot? Did it have water and sewer? Paved? How much did he pay for the lot? How about the zoning? I'm being kind of silly. How much did he pay for the lot? Eh? When did he buy it? Who gave him the deed? What specific money did he use? Did he use the 30 pieces of silver? What's the answer? No. How do we know that? Because he threw the 30 pieces of silver at the potter in the temple, fulfilled Zechariah eleven. Okay, next week we'll reread that. Obviously, Judas did not use the Zechariah 11 good shepherd wages to buy the lot. Who used the good shepherd wages to buy a lot? The Pharisees did. Read the text, Matthew 27, 3 through 10. Obvious question, what money did Judas use? Where did he get the money? There you go. There you go. Why did he use that money? That money was for who? That's for the poor. okay. Why did Judas use that money? What's its significance? I'll give you a clue. How many were here when I did the Hebrew betrothal ceremony? The 12 steps. There's 12 steps. A bunch of you were. This is step two. Because you got to pay a price for your bride. He pays a price and buys a lot, doesn't he? Okay, certainly Judas, Satan would counterfeit the Hebrew betrothal ceremony pattern because Christ is using that. That's when Christ says, I go to make to prepare a a place for you. That is part of the betrothal ceremony pattern. Okay, my father's house has many mansions. That's what the groom says to the bride. Then he leaves. Then he comes back when he has the mansion prepared. Christ has done nine steps. There's only three left. Do you think he will get the job done? Of course, he will. Okay, why did the Pharisees buy land? I got Judas buying land and I got the Pharisees buy land. A.W. Pink says it's different land. It's not the same land. Some people think it's the same land. But if it is different land, then we got all kinds of implications. What are the implications? Going pretty fast, aren't it? Was the exchange between the Pharisees and Judas-Satan at Matthew 27, was that a staged event? What is the exchange between Judas and the Pharisees? That's where Judas comes back and goes. (laughs) Wrong man. Did they stage that? He threw the money very dramatically. What's the obvious question? How many people saw him? Who saw him? Is he remorseful? Proverbs six. No. He is a contrary nature. That is a mistranslation. He is regretting something. He's recognized that God has outmaneuvered him. He is not remorseful. He has a contrary nature. He's perverse. He's irrational. You cannot think of him the way you think of yourself. He doesn't have he cannot has no chance of salvation, he is totally black. So, in other words, is the exchange between the Pharisees and Judas-Satan a stage event for the purposes of deception? In other words, is it a lie? Would we expect there would be a lie in both of those groups? Of course we would, duh. If so, if it is, how so and why, what does Jeremiah have to do with this? Because this is called in Matthew a fulfillment of Jeremiah 32, but it's really a fulfillment of Zechariah 11, 12 through 13. At least that's the way it seems. So what's Jeremiah have to do with that? How do we reconcile who bought what? How much real estate was bought? Was it side by side? Was it ne- or was it apart from each other? How do we reconcile The real estate investment. Next week, that's what we'll do. This week, I answered a lot of questions, didn't I? I really did. Don't tell anybody. Next week, I'll answer some more. We're almost wrapped up with this section. Let's uh, stand and be dismissed.